This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 114. Hi, I'm Chris Brogan, author of The Freaks Shall Inherit the Earth. And the good news is you're well on your way because only a freak would listen to this. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend Jeff Brown. you're the boss and you're not tolerating failure, if somebody fails and they get fired, all you're doing is sending a message to your people not to take risks and not to put their best ideas out there. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Hi, welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth. Leadership is at the center of everything we do here, but we also talk about many of the topics related to that, like personal development, productivity, career, business, marketing, and entrepreneurship. And today, you and I are going to get to learn from Ken Goldstein. He's the author of Endless Encores, Repeating Success Through People, Products, and Profits. I'm going to be asking Ken about the key to building a career of endless encores, the importance of understanding the difference between compromise and consensus, the three things you need to evaluate the next time you make a hiring decision, and a lot more. If you're looking to take a stand for your health and not sit at a desk as often as you currently do, you might want to consider the upright desk from the folks at Updesk. It's the one I use. It's a motorized desk, and it moves up and down whenever you need to. I love mine. I think you'll like it, too. To find out more, visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash desk. Ken Goldstein advises startups and established corporations in technology, entertainment, media, and e-commerce. He has served as chief executive officer and chairman of the board of shop.com and executive vice president and managing director of Disney Online, among other places. He speaks and teaches frequently on topics of leadership, executive management, and innovation. His first book was This Is Rage, a novel of Silicon Valley and other madness. Ken is also the author of the business fable, Endless Encores, Repeating Success Through People, Products, and Profits. Ken, welcome to Read to Lead. Jeff, thanks so much for having me on your show. Ken, what was your main goal in writing Endless Encores? What what did you set out to do, particularly by writing it as a parable? Well, you know, I I had this, uh, you know, this... uh, Long, uh, long collection of blog posts that uh, I've been I've been writing over the last uh, couple of years, and um, you know, this sort of original idea was could we put those into an anthology and uh, and put that out there? But you know, that just you know, blog posts are on the web; they're free. <laughs> it just didn't seem it didn't seem like the right thing to do. But the the core essence of it, um, you know, my employees have been asking me to write this book for years and years and years, and so I said, well, what's a way to do it that pushes the creative envelope? Is not ordinary. Uh, you know, in, in the way that I, I say in the book to challenge people to do something different, find a different way. I said, well, you know, let's do it as a parable. Let's do it as a story and uh, and see if we can make that work. So when I sort of talked to my, my publisher about that, he said, you know, if you can make that work as a parable, a relatively short but engaging story and characters and get all those ideas across, uh, you'll have accomplished something. So I, I saw that as a challenge and I said, let's go get it done. 
Well, I certainly enjoyed it. Very easy to read. I think I read it in, in two sittings, about half of it one morning, half of it the next morning, and, and found it very, very engaging. Well, thank you for that. I, uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we jump into some more questions, describe for us uh, the two main characters in the story. What do we need to know about them before we go, go further? Well, I, of course, as any author, I don't want to give too much away. Sure. Uh, this is uh, this is a story, and I want you to get to meet <laughs> the characters as you're going through. Absolutely. Um, but basically, uh, you know, it's a story that any of us could live, particularly uh, in business, if we travel and get stuck in those airport lounges with a delayed flight. And that's what this is, really. Mm. It's uh, uh, a CEO, uh, a very uh, veteran CEO named Daphne, uh, who's sitting at the bar and sees a young guy named Paul, uh kind of, uh, you know, uh, worrying the night away in his, in his uh, glass of red wine, and she basically says, what's the matter? And that sort of, uh, <laughs> the world starts with a chance meeting. Mm-hmm. Paul has uh, had meteoric uh, success in a very, very short amount of time, gone from kind of, you know, being a uh, wannabe, uh, aspiring uh, product manager to suddenly having a very successful product on, on his hands, uh, tremendously successful and sort of launched in limelight. Now, of course, everybody thinks... Uh, he knows everything, and he knows what he's doing, and he can repeat over and over. And on his second product, uh, guess what? He hits the wall, <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it's no good. And boy, we've all been there, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he just says, uh, you know, am I a fraud? Uh, you know, I, I can't do this again. I don't know what to do. And Daphne, uh, with her many years of ups and downs, uh, takes him through the process of... Uh, it's not about one product. It's not about one winner. You know, one winner, one lose. Mm. It's about the process of creativity and innovation. And they spend the rest of the night talking about that. Ken, what would you say is key to building a career of, of endless encores? If you had to narrow it down to, to one thing. So you know, the, I think I think the number one thing you know that, that that Daphne sort of you know launches on is that innovation is something that you're committed to all the time. Uh, not just when you need to deliver the product or the service. And to do that, you have to be looking forward all the time, not looking back. It's not about your laurels. It's not what you've done. Uh, you know, it's really about pushing yourself outside uh, the comfort zone. You know, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I use a lot of music uh, analogies and, and references in the book because music's very important to me. And, mm. uh, you know, it's 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 interesting. One of the one of the examples uh, that I use uh, is is the Eagles, and and um, you know we lost uh, Glenn Fry this week, and mm. uh, you know w- the Eagles were just this amazing amazing band who were kind of like you know really before they broke up, but you know for this last reunion bit, you know all of six albums to make to make the uh, the impact that they had on on our culture. And and each one stepping up one two three four and then this thing that, that just came out of nowhere that just no one had ever heard anything like it called Hotel California, and you know you remember that right? Mm-hmm. What a what that wasn't just like a hit that was like you know Michael Jackson's Thriller. I mean mm-hmm. it was off the charts, and then they had to go back in the studio and do it again. Mm-hmm. And and how do you do that? <laughs> how do you come off something that successful? And the number one thing you can't do is do that album again because you already did it. You have to do something different. And of course, it led to huge anxiety and, and lots of, uh, you know, lots of infighting and, 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 and bickering and all that other stuff. And they did. They came out with uh, the long run afterwards. And so, you know, that process is letting go 
everything that came before, whether you're, you're famous or not famous, successful or not successful, whatever came before is only about the learning. We all go to the blank slate when we start on something new. And, and, mm-hmm. and Daphne is very much committed to that, and uh, hopefully Paul is listening. Well, Ken, in your experience, what have you learned about the key differences between leadership and, and titles? I mean, it can be easy to think that because I have a certain title, then people are required to follow me. But there's much, much more to it than that. Absolutely. And, and you know, people learn this in the course of the career. I learned it. You know, you think the first time you get, you know, promoted to VP, it's like, oh, wow, you know, I'm VP now. I got a, a business card that says I'm the boss. <laughs> And it, it doesn't mean anything. Titles don't mean squat. I mean, if you, if people, you know, following people is a choice. Mm-hmm. And if you don't set a tone for leadership where people want to get on board, I mean, talk about office politics. Sure, they'll tell you your face, you know, that they're, that they're doing what you ask. But, you know, they got that pocket veto, uh, you know, in the back room where, you know, they may not be doing anything at all. They may not be rallying behind you. So if you think that the title, is what gets people to follow you, then you are not paying attention. And I promise you one thing, if, if you're leaning on the title to, uh, to inspire uh, people to uh, get on board with you, you won't have the title very long. You'll lose it. Well, you've obviously, over the course of your career, uh, had a chance to, to hire a number of people. I would assume you fired your share of people on the way as well. Uh, but what do you look for when hiring someone? What, what are the things that are most important to you? Well, the most important thing, and Daphne does, does uh, talk about this in the book, uh, but the most important thing is to realize that hiring is the most important thing you do. There, there is no more important decision as a leader than who you add to the team. Probably the only one that uh, even gets close is what you suggested, who you remove from the team, and if you have the courage uh, to do it and to do it, you know, in, in the right manner, in a, in a humane manner that keeps the team going. But, you know, it, it, I talk about, I wrote a, a, an article for Forbes years ago uh, about, uh, you know, the movie director John Huston. And uh, mm. surprise, surprise, Daphne occasionally refers to John Huston <laughs> in the book. And, uh, you know, John Huston, you know, did all the Bogart movies, uh, you know, Tre- Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and these amazing pictures. And, and they said, you know, what what is the uh, secret to your success? What's the secret to directing? And and in without even missing a beat, he said it's casting. Mm. So well, why why is casting so important? He says, well, you know, if I get the right actor in the right role and the right actor in the right role next to them, my job consists of saying action and marvelous. That's all <laughs> I have to do. And if I don't have the right actor in the right role, I got to work like a dog, you know, morning, noon, and night, and I probably still won't get a great creative, you know, organic result. So mm. that that analogy is exactly right. If you don't put the right people, you know, in the right positions for what you need, you're not going to get great results. Mm. And the thing that when I go in now occasionally to consult or when I'm working with uh, some of my portfolio companies, and I hear somebody even 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 mention the words, you know, well, you know, we got to fill this this box on the orm chart, or so, you know, we got to put a warm body in that. You've heard that, right? Mm-hmm. And I freak out. I'm just like, you know what? You're better off with nobody in that box than a warm body. You got to get the right person in that box because it's not a box; it's a position of leadership that's going to take going to take your company to the next level or sink you like a stone. So. Please, please, anybody who's hiring, anybody who's interviewing, 
it's not, well, if I just, you know, get a warm body in that box, my problems will go away. You could be adding a lot of problems by doing it. So with that preamble, uh, you know, I think there are three, there are three uh, bits of the equation here, uh, character, competency, and compatibility, mm. and, and they all matter. Now, what happens uh, way too often is that people focus on competency, right? Let me see the resume. And, and, you know, and you know, the resume only tells you one thing what they did in the past. And that's assuming they're telling the truth. Let's mm. hope that they're telling the <laughs> truth. And I see resumes that, uh, mm. you know, people take credit for stuff all the time. I'll look at stuff and go, oh, you're taking credit for that. I could have thought for sure that I worked on that 25 years ago. I must have <laughs> forgotten. You know? But uh, you know, the resume is, is an indicator of, of some ability uh, but that competency, you know, do you know this programming language, you know, do you understand this industry, have you worked on a brand in food service, okay, fine, so that's competency. Uh, well, you know, you've got a job description that talks about, you know, I need this, 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 and this, and this resume lines up with that, okay, great, it's a match, off we go. No, absolutely not. That's one of three things you've got to focus on. You've got to focus on character. And character is probably the single most thing that comes out in the course of an interview. You say, well, why do I have to go to this dinner with all these people and, <laughs> and, and make sure that my manners are good? And then it's like, hey, it's like dating, you know? Mm -hmm. People aren't going to reveal themselves in a 30-minute interview. In fact, they're going to be on their absolute best behavior. But over the course of many conversations with many people, you start to figure out who somebody is. And I tell you, because we've all been there, if they're not exhibiting tremendous integrity in every answer to every question and in every interaction, that is a warning sign. And integrity is honesty, truthfulness. You know, when you ask someone the question, uh, tell me about some areas of improvement for yourself, uh, you know, is there candor in their response? Integrity is a very big deal. Because if you get somebody who's a player, you know, you introduce one, you know, highly political, uh, you know, manipulator into an otherwise uh, you know sane environment that sane environment will become less sane almost immediately and then and then that kind of nicely leads into compatibility which is why i think you see a lot of emphasis particularly you know in the in the new generation of hiring the millennials mm. uh on compatibility which is is this a good fit for the team now again you got to be careful here because we're not looking for sameness, right? It's not just does everybody here think the same, does everybody here look the same, mm. but the question is can everybody here work together and can they get along? Mm. And, uh, you know, again, not necessarily harmony for harmony's sake, but, you know, you work, HyperDi work mostly in the software area and these projects are immense and they involve people all over the world. Uh, and if, if people are at war all the time, uh, and can't work together and don't share values of, of what c constitutes quality and what constitutes innovation, you know, a project can stay in place a long time. So those, those three things. I'm not saying competency doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. If you can't program, I don't want to hire you as a programmer. Why would I do that? Yeah. But there are other things, as we would say, the intangible, so character, competency, and compatibility. You mentioned the importance of diversity on a team. Uh, what about uh, a team's ability to distinguish, Ken, between compromise and consensus? It, it's, it takes a lifetime to learn this. It, it, it's really, really hard, but you got to do it. You know, compromise is a political solution. It's let's agree so that we can move forward. It's let's, let's agree so that we can stop fighting. It serves the team 
and it doesn't serve the customer. Consensus is about have we continued to work the issue until the best ideas have emerged and as a team have we recognized that the best ideas have emerged and that we are going to solve the problem with those solutions as opposed to, well, everybody gets to contribute. You know, Mm. everybody gets to contribute is not the same as everybody gets to speak and everybody gets to get hurt. That's something that's important as a leader that you allow. You allow that communication. But I don't necessarily think that everybody has something to add on every single point. And if that's what you're trying to do to build a compromise, you're solving Mm. your own problems. You're not solving your customers' problems. When Mm. you build to a consensus, it's a leadership skill that causes everyone to contribute until there is a recognition that you are on the right track. And at the end of that meeting, if you've done it well, nobody remembers who contributed what. Nobody's saying, well, they went with my idea. You want to pool your ideas. You want to test your ideas. You want to challenge your ideas. You want to refine and push your ideas. And the team wants to agree that you've done a good job of that. And then you know what to do. And then you can evaluate. So compromise you get a product that nobody wants, consensus, you get a product that everybody wants. Our last guest on the show, Jay Baer of Convince and Convert, recently wrote a book called Hug Your Haters, and Endless Encores speaks to this at at one point. Uh, Why do you feel can the customers who complain the most control the keys to your survival? You know, if you're not listening to your customers when they complain, it's like the canary in the coal mine, you know. Here's the warning sign. You say, how are things going off the tracks? And you go, I don't want to listen to that. (laughs) I mean, it's the most important thing to listen to. If you've got a customer that's willing to tell you what you're doing wrong, how else are you going to find out? Every time uh, I go to a new Starbucks, uh, they send me, you know, I know, I went to a Starbucks never been to, you get a survey. How did it go? You know, your fresh eyes on that situation. And, mm. and if, that, if that Starbucks is not performing up to the level of Starbucks expectations, you know, how many stores, thousands of stores, how are they going to find out? They pick a random customer who walked in the door and said, is the store clean? Uh, <laughs> you know, if, if they tell you it's not clean and you go, oh, they told us it's not clean. Well, you know, gosh, we don't want to, you know, we can tell Howard that we have a store that's not clean. I mean, <laughs> come on. I mean, that's the most important, that's the most important thing you can find out. So your customers will tell you everything you need to know if you're not burying the information. You know, the other thing about it, and I learned this, I learned this at Disney. I was at Disney for uh, for almost a decade. Disney's hugely, hugely focused on customer service, as you would imagine. Um, but they're also focused on the art of the windback, and mm-hmm. and I learned this there, and and it's just it stuck with me forever. You know, when you fail a customer in a relationship you've hit the proverbial fork in the road, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, okay, so they walk into the room and the bed's not made and, uh, you know, and and the mirror's dirty and uh, and someone, you know, forgot to vacuum, right? And Mm -hmm. horrors, this person, you know, walks into this room at midnight, you know, and it's horrible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and they've paid all this money for it and they're all excited about the trip, okay? So they call down to the the front desk and they say, you know, I don't know about this room you put us in, you know, the sheets are all, you know, pulled apart and the mirror's dirty and you know, stuff on the sink, you know, this is pretty horrible. I'm, I'm thinking about checking out and, you know, going down the road to the Hilton. At that point, how you handle that customer will do one of two things. It will either drive that customer away forever or it will bomb that customer for life. Mm. That's how important that frontline interaction is. And if the person at front desk says, well, you know, 
Uh, our maid's gone home for the night. There's really nothing we can do. Uh, we're pretty sure the sheets are clean. Uh, <laughs> please just, just, you know, deal with it and, and, you know, we'll figure out tomorrow what went wrong. Okay. That customer is never coming back. Right. There's nothing you can do. There's no amount of advertising. There's no amount of anything you can do. Okay. Mm. If you have the presidential suite available at that moment and you upgrade that customer <laughs> to the presidential suite, you have bonded that customer for life. If you, the front desk person, run up the stairs, walk into the room, and make the bed yourself, you have won that customer for life. <laughs> if you look at those people and say, I've got, I've got 50 people at the front desk, I have no maid on duty, I have no presidential suite to offer you, but let me comp you your theme park passes for the next three days while I'm figuring this out. I'm deeply sorry. There's nothing I can do. It's the only thing I can do, but I've got to do something for you. You'll bond that customer for life. Mm -hmm. And when you understand what the lifetime value of those customers are, anything you do, anything you do is cheaper than losing that customer because losing that customer, you've made the lifetime value terminal. Whatever you paid to acquire that customer is now sunk cost. Whereas if that person goes home and tells the story that I just told you and says, you know, I checked in my hotel, I couldn't believe it. I mean, my goodness, you know, the, the bed was tear apart, the mirror was dirty, there was stuff on the sink, and they upgraded me to the presidential, you know, suite at no extra charge, or the front desk guy came up, came up and did the best he could with a vacuum cleaner to clean the room really quickly, or they gave me theme park passes for the, that's the story they're going to tell. Mm -hmm. And, and how do you buy that? How do you buy that kind of, of advertising of a customer telling you, you know, you, you go in, I mean, what, what the story I just told you about Starbucks, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you say, these guys want to know, I just told you that story, your listeners will hear that story, they now know that Starbucks is checking up on every single one of their stores, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. How do you buy advertising like that? You can't. <laughs> your customers become your evangelists because if something goes wrong, they want to fix it, mm -hmm. they want to know about it. So, your those complaints are, are they're gold. They're gold on every level. The gold in telling you who you know what's going wrong before it spreads wide, and it's gold on giving you the opportunity to win back a customer who you might otherwise lose. Ken, how can we make sure that we don't let things like hype, maybe from a successful product launch or what have you, uh, lead to bad decision making? It's it's so prevalent. You know, look at look at this. Uh, whole uh, flash sale thing, you know, I mean, uh, you know, a couple years ago, uh, you know, uh, uh, Guild Group and, and uh, One King's Lane, you know, everything was going to be a flash sale. Mm. And next thing you know, you know, there's 100 companies doing this. And, you know, now they're all bought up and gone at, you know, a fraction of what it was, you know, you think about it like a stock, right? If the stock is already trading at a ridiculous multiple, if it's overvalued, if, if everything is already, you know, uh, the, recognized, the, the innovation's been done, do you want to buy it at the top or do you want to buy it at the bottom? Do you want to buy it when it's unrecognized, when nobody knows it's there? And this, this hype where, you know, look at those guys. Oh, look at Uber. We have to get into the shared, you know, the shared economy. And, and then, you know, 50 other guys jump in and go do that. You know, the one or two leaders are going to win it and everybody else is going to get wiped out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you just got to be, you got to be really careful about that. Uh, the hype is, is after the market's already made. Mm -hmm. The opportunity is before the market's made. So I'm not saying, you know, it's like, 
you know, you couldn't overhype the internet when the internet came out, but that didn't mean that everybody knew how to monetize it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the internet just, just continues to monetize, monetize. But this idea, if you go back and look at the dot-com stocks, you know, the thing that drove the, uh, not, not the last recession, the one before that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the AOL Time Warner recession, uh, you know, how many companies uh, from from the dot com launch are are still left right you've got uh you've got uh, amazon right mm-hmm. uh you've got ebay which you know is is still doing okay mm-hmm. uh yahoo hanging on by a thread <laughs> right mm-hmm. uh you know who who else is you know google? Is, is still hanging pardon me google Google came after. Google, Google's the best example. That's right. Google that's right. came out of the ashes of the recession, right? <laughs> that's People right. forget. It's like the idea of launching a search engine. Do you remember? I mean, we used to call them the portal wars, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you had AltaVista and uh, InfoSeek, which we had at Disney. We called it Go.com. And, and you had, I mean, Excited Home. Remember all those? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and they all crashed and burned. Every single, the only one that didn't crash and burn was Yahoo. And and they all crashed and burned and and went for for pennies on the dollar and the and the um, absolute uh, the conventional wisdom without exception said well search is sort of a necessary commodity but you can't really make money at it we've proven that and you sort of look around and you go so we've been in this internet business for like three years and we've proven that you know <laughs> and and the guys at Google are like well we're going to make the best search engine ever and and then you know. Uh, these guys, you know, here in Southern California at Overture come up with keyword search advertising, you know, as a new paradigm. Everybody looks at that and goes, well, what's that? Oh, so you pay when you click on the word? You know, and the next thing you know, the best search engine says, well, they can't patent that, so we can do keyword advertising. And out of the wreckage mm. of the portal wars becomes the winner of the war, right? Mm. And mm. it was the least sexy space in the universe. I mean, I can't even imagine the idea of going to venture capitalists and the wreckage. I mean, all the money that was lost on Excited, all the money that was lost on, on AltaVista, all the money that was lost on these, on these companies. And, and somebody said, we're going to build the greatest search engine ever, you know. And, <laughs> and you know, th- there was no hype at all. Mm. So that's what I'm saying is, is yeah. that's where the action is, right? The action is when nobody's looking at it, can you figure out the next big thing? Well, then the next thing you know is everybody's chasing Google again, and, you know, good luck <laughs> on that. Same thing with YouTube. I mean, I, uh, I, I sat in so many meetings, so many meetings, and, you know, this whole idea of amateur content is junk, nobody likes it, uh, you know, professional content will, will always win. Uh, no, no one, no one's going to watch amateur content. No advertiser is going to want to be associated, right? Mm. And out of that, what is born? YouTube, right? right. YouTube, you know, user-generated video, and, and you go, how did that happen? And you go, well, well, we had this show on ABC called America's Funniest Home Videos. <laughs> People seem to like to watch that. I don't know home <laughs> movies. People seem to like that. And and the next thing you know, boom, it's YouTube, right? And YouTube's not about the professional content. It's about the fact that the world is democratized and anybody can upload content. Now try to take on, I don't want to take on YouTube, forget that. I mean, Yahoo just tried with Yahoo Video. That didn't work. So, again, careful about the hype. You want to figure out the opportunity before everybody else figures out. Because once everybody's doing the flash sale, or once everybody's doing the Groupon, and once everybody's doing the video, you're playing catch-up, and uh, that's a tough place to be. 
Ken, I do want to ask a couple of questions uh, that don't come right from the book. But before I do, is there anything else you want to make sure that we know? The, the most important lesson, the most important. I, I just I give I give this talk, uh, this launch talk uh, to businesses, you know, all over the world. Uh, is you must understand that it's not failure if it's learning, mm. and without some form of setback or failure, you will not. No one will find the next big thing, find the next big idea. So in your corporate culture, if you're the boss and you're not tolerating failure, if somebody fails and they get fired, all you're doing is sending a message to your people not to take risks and not to put their best ideas out there. And if you're in an environment that punishes failure, um, very candidly, I'd say get out of that environment and get into an environment that allows them. You look again, you go back to Google. Uh, what are they doing right? You know, one of the things they're doing right is encouraging the creativity and innovation of their people, and people there don't get fired for failing. Uh, if you can codify the failure in such a way that there's learning that comes out of it, I mean, my goodness, you know what not to do. How valuable is that? I mean, I look, I look at what happened, um, you know, a few years ago at Lululemon, I, and it was just it was just mind-boggling to me. It's like, okay, they made a mistake, right? The 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 manufacturing of the yoga pants was too sheer, and and they're very obviously you know embarrassed unhappy customers. And so you go in and you start firing the creative director and and uh, and the head of innovation and the head of supply chain management as a punishment when they're the ones that know what went wrong. I mean, they're the ones that can fix the problem and make sure that it never happens again. And you had, mm. what, three years at, at Lululemon after that of, of poor performance, not because they had upset their customers, because they didn't recover from upsetting their customers, and they didn't do it because they didn't keep the people in place who made an honest mistake and knew what not to do next. So. Again, it's not failure if it's learning. If there is no learning and all you do is spend a bunch of the company's money and launch a product that nobody buys, yeah, those people need to go home. But if they can explain the learning and roll it forward, hey, Google didn't make the best search engine in the world on the first try. Let me tell you, there were, <laughs> there were numerous experiments in that algorithm until they figure it out. And guess what? They're still perfecting it here 15 years later. Uh, and I'm sure they put code rolls that don't work. They're not going to tell you about them. Uh, but they go, oh, that code roll didn't work. Pull it back. Push this one out. You know that that's going on. That's the only way you get, you know, as they would say, from good to great. One of my fondest memories uh, working for a company was was a group of us who got together uh, with our leader and and discussed books that we were reading. Uh, and and if you're fortunate enough at, wherever you work to be in that kind of environment, I, I can't think of a better book to add to that list. Than this one, if you're not currently doing that where you work, I can't think of a better book to kick that off than Endless Encores. Uh, Ken, uh, speaking of books, I wondered if you might name for us a, a couple that you have read recently or over the years that you keep going back to that have had a, had a big impact on you. Well, first of all, thank you. I really appreciate the kind words about Endless Encores, and I have been getting that. The, the, the joy of writing uh, you know, a short book like that mm is hearing back from people, you know, all over the world, you know, that they read it in one or two sittings and, and were able to apply the wisdom. There's a, there's a pop quiz at the end that, that people can take that sort of, you know, is meant to keep them honest. And I've had people call me up and, you know, tell me that, you know, they started crying in the middle of it, but that that was very cathartic and that mm. they were able to then course correct uh, as a result. I, you know, I, look, I've loved books since I'm a kid. Books are a big thing. I'm in the book business. <laughs> uh, 
you know, books matter. There's no greater gift. I, I tell bosses, whatever the, the thing is, if you're going to give your, your employees a gift every year at the holidays, give them a book because mm. you know what? I've got them looking at my bookshelf right now in, in, in my office, and half these books are, are, are gifts that were given to me by employees or given to me by bosses, and you keep them. They matter. Mm-hmm. So in terms of books that matter to me, the, the one that is sort of – it's funny. I went to a talk the other morning, and somebody referenced it, and I, I was so glad that they did because I hadn't heard about it in a long time, um, is Andy Grove's uh, Only the Paranoid Survive. Andy Grove was the CEO of Intel um, during the go-go years, you know, the 90s when we yeah. went from the uh, 8086 architecture all the way up to the, you know, to the Pentium. And, uh, and this sort of motto of only the paranoid survive is exactly that, don't stand on your laurels. But what Andy really kicked off with that book was the whole uh, sort of intellectual um, uh, codification, if you will, of, of creative destruction, this whole mm. idea that, you know, if you don't invent it, your competitors will. And if you don't cannibalize your own markets, your competitors will. And if you think that what you've got is so great that somebody can't leapfrog you, <laughs> you're not paranoid, you will get beat. And again, if you're in the tech industry, um, you know, it's kind of one of our Bibles because it kind of goes yeah. back to the days where, you know, computers did become ubiquitous. Um, another one that I really, I bought probably, oh gosh, hundreds of copies of for people uh, over the years is First Break All the Rules, yeah. uh, Buckingham and Kaufman. And, and you know, that's, it's a very, very counterintuitive book. Uh, I guess that's why they called it First Break All the Rules. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it really says focus on your stars. And, uh-huh. and as a manager, as a leader, as an executive, you know, there's this sort of HR pressure to be very fair with your time and sort of mm. distribute it broadly. And, and what you find out is, you know, there's a small percentage of your people that really drive the value in your business and a whole bunch of your people that will drag you down. Mm. And you can easily get stuck spending all your time with those people that will drag you down. Whereas if you spend your time with the people who are really adding value, your stars, your business will explode. And so it says, you know, basically it's up to the employee to get with the program. If they want to be part of the team and a positive, optimistic force for change, then you've got time for them. If they want to grumble about, you know, the coffee here is stale and, and you know, the, the desks aren't very nice and the cubicles are horrible. Okay, fine. You know, that that's not the canary in the coal mine. That's just somebody, you know, griping and grumbling. Mm. But positive, impact, high-impact employees who, who want to change the world, that's where you should spend your time. And, and the other one, and probably it's funny because it's, it wasn't written, they weren't written as a parable. Jim Collins, both I referenced before, um, uh, built to last and then good to great. Uh, and it's funny because, you know, those books, built to last is all about brands and, and how companies develop brands and why brands matter. Uh, you know, and good to great is about companies that exactly that, you know, were kind of, you know, doing just fine, but then went to the next step. The funny thing about those two books is that the message of the books is more important than the examples because, as Andy Grove would tell you, with only the paranoid survive, half the reference companies in those books don't exist anymore. Mm. And those were books; those were companies that were, when they wrote the books, held up as examples of greatness. And uh, so, the the I think the lessons that are extracted from from those books 
are more important. But again, built to last, are you investing for the long haul? Is it just about, you know, making quarterly earnings or is it about putting this company on the map, you know, forever or attempting to do so? And good to great is, okay, you're doing all these things right. Are you satisfied with that? How do you bond your customers in a way that they will sustain the organization for very long periods of time and reinvest in you? So, so those are some good books that I think people should have on their shelf and probably pick up every couple of years. Great suggestions. Ken, what's next on the horizon for you? What are you, what are you and your, your team working on now that, that you're excited about? Well, um, of course, I'm working on another book because <laughs> that's what authors do. Atmos Hour Course was my, was my second book. My first book uh, was a very uh, long novel uh, that took on all of Silicon Valley called This Is Rage, a novel of Silicon Valley and other madness. This one will be a novel again, uh, not quite as long as uh, This Is Rage, but uh, quite a bit more expensive than in the sign course. So mm-hmm. hopefully that will be out in a couple of years if I can continue to find the hours each day to focus <laughs> on it. Um, my Probably my uh, most exciting company that I'm involved with right now uh, is a wonderful, wonderful high-growth company called ThriftBooks, mm-hmm. uh, which people can find at thriftbooks.com. Um, and we're, believe it or not, the largest seller of used books in the world. And it's not like your old old world corner bookstore. I mean, uh, it's not, you know, come in and browse and buy. It's, you come in and search, and uh, and we probably have it. I mean, we're sorting through 3 million, you know, uh, 3 million used books a week to find the ones that you want. And uh, we'll search through, oh, gosh, I don't know. Hundred over 150 million pounds of paper this year, and the uh, books that we don't sell, uh, we turn into pulp, and that gets made, uh, sold off, and made into furniture. So it's a very green company. Mm. Um, so very excited about that, and uh, putting putting instead of putting uh, old books into the earth, uh, putting them back into people's hands. I'm also um, very involved with uh, an online editorial site called The Good Men Project. People can find that at goodmenproject.com, just like it sounds. And we deal with uh, editorial issues around um, you know things that men are facing in the 21st century, marriage, family, relationships, career stress. So we also deal with entertainment, sports, politics, ethics. Um, the interesting thing about The Good Men Project and the reason I'm so excited about it um, is we, we've made a, we've been around for about four or five years. I've been involved for the last three. Um, is we were really creating a dialogue between uh, between men and women. And uh, although the project is the Good Men Project, uh, uh, it's half our writers are women, uh, half our readers are women. And so if you go to the comment section on a lot of the stories, uh, we publish uh, 30 to 50 stories a day from uh, about 2,000 writers around the world. And uh, you'll see dialogue going on, and we, we you know, we don't uh, enforce political correctness, but we mm-hmm. fo- focus on polite interchange. And so we get men and women talking about things instead of uh, at each other talking with each other, and so the comments can be as interesting uh, as the stories. So uh, those are some of the things I'm working on. And then, of course, uh, I'm uh, always involved in, in social issues, very involved in, in uh, children's welfare Mm. And uh, working in Southern California with uh, various uh, you know departments of social services to try to make sure that uh, we're making our city a better place wherever we can. Well, I can attest to uh, everything you said about the Goodman Project. I've been fortunate enough to uh, contribute weekly for the last few weeks, and am very much enjoying that process. And 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 read just this morning. I think it was just today that you published uh, talking about your plans for the future. So that was exciting to see. 
Yeah, it's 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 great. You know, it's another one of those. It's funny because you know there are other startups I've been involved with the last few years that haven't gone as well. Uh, but the two that are really kind of kind of getting there, I, Thriftbooks is pretty far down the path. It's hard to call it a startup anymore, given the <laughs> scale. You know, we've got ten distribution centers. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, we turned the corner on uh, on uh, profitability with Good Men Project just barely, and but we're not. You know, we're putting every dollar back into uh, into the uh, into the code base and trying to make a better experience mm. and uh, encouraging more people to write for us. Well, the book, again, is Endless Encores, Repeating Success Through People, Products, and Profits by Ken Goldstein, a delightful read. Ken, thank you for your time and for being a part of the show. We really, really appreciate it. Jeff, thanks so much. And, uh, you know, as I told you when we uh, first got on the phone, you're uh, very prepared and very detailed, and it's very appreciated by an author to have such a great a great interviewer. And you're, <laughs> you're very, very good at what you do and obviously very innovative. And I... I do appreciate that, and I'm sure your listeners appreciate that, too. Well, thank you. Very kind of you to say, sir. I appreciate it. You can find all the notes from this episode on our show notes page, found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 114 for episode 114. I'll be sure to link to Ken's LinkedIn account there if you'd like to connect with him on LinkedIn. You can also connect with him on Twitter. He's at Corporate Intel on Twitter. That's at Corporate Intel. If you're looking to take a stand for your health, then you need to consider a motorized desk for home or work. Find out more about the folks at Updesk by going to readtoleadpodcast.com slash desk. If you enjoy the Read to Lead podcast, would you consider leaving a rating and written review in either iTunes or Stitcher? If so, simply go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes to leave a rating and review there or readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. We really appreciate it as ratings and reviews go a long way in helping get the show noticed and recognized by people who might enjoy it. People like In the Army Now 99 with a five-star rating and written review who says, why did it take me so long to find this podcast? Well, that's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read to Lead.